Eight. Well, Murph, the topic that you and your die have determined that we'll be discussing is theater of the mind versus maps, minis, and other visual representations. What are the pros and cons of each? This was added by guest GM Jason Madison way back in episode 11. Ooh. All right. Hello and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about running role-playing games. Each episode, our guest rolls on our table of topics and we discuss the result. My name is Chris Salzman. And I'm Andy Rowe. And this week we are joined by special guest Murph, who just rolled on our table. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so Murph, you and I know each other from the internet. Right. <laughs> Primarily, yeah. So <laughs> As I know many people. Yeah, we have a video feed going right now, so I'm actually seeing you move around for the first time. This is super great. Um, but yeah, so uh, I guess why don't we start by, can you tell us a little bit about your history with playing role-playing games? Sure. So I started playing Dungeons & Dragons in fourth or fifth grade when I randomly stumbled across the old uh, Forgotten Realms gray box in a, it was like an end cap in the, the toy house in Jackson. So I have very clear memory of this uh, formative moment there. And it said on the box, you know, everything you need for adventure is inside except your imagination. I took that at face value. I had no rule books or dice to start with. So my initial period of gaming was basically, you know, 10-year-old Forgotten Realms fanfic uh, with wh- whatever reverse engineering of the rules I could come up with and uh, bully my little brother into playing with. So, and then I also have the, you know, six months later sort of traditional, you know, one of my uncles played D&D and found out I was interested and... Uh, so invited me to a game with with his group, and off from there. You played with your your little brother first. Did you have anyone else, or was it just you two? Um, I think it was it started with just us, and then yeah, I had a, a circle of friends through uh, middle school, four or five of us who would get together a couple of times a week, or sometimes every day at lunch in the cafeteria or whatnot to play for forty five minutes at a time. And mostly Dungeons and Dragons uh, or AD and D Second Edition at the time. A little bit of Warhammer fantasy roleplay, a little bit of Palladium, some GURPS, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and other strangeness, which I think is a GURPS mod. Palladium, uh, I think. Palladium, okay. It was, uh, I recall, very complicated to build characters, and then uh, actual gameplay was not actually that interesting <laughs> once you... <laughs> well, it's important when you're playing a game with mutant ninja sewer creatures that the rules be very detailed and realistic. Yeah. Right. There, there was definitely D100s rolled for what type of animal you were a mutant of um, and various powers and whatnot. That's a really well-regarded game by a lot of people. That yeah. A lot of people have a nostalgic attachment to that one. I, I think we played two or three times, but I do have a nostalgic attachment to it, yes. So. Yeah, moving more towards the present, I've mostly play various forms of D&D or more recently Pathfinder a lot with some occasional branching off into Star Wars or Numenera or um, a couple sessions of Dungeon World. Maybe a month ago ran my first session of Dungeon Crawl Classic which was a lot of fun. I've got uh, I guess 30 years of playing various forms of D&D with occasional other stuff sprinkled on top of it. Have you generally been the GM throughout that 30 years? Most of the time yes. Probably 75% 75% DMing and playing when I can, but... Is that a, uh, a choice you prefer being GM, or just uh, the fact of how you get your games together? Some of both. I mean, I do enjoy being the DM and, um, and knowing what's going on behind the screen and offering it up to folks for, for discovery, or sort of homebrewing the plot that much of the time I never actually get a chance to run yeah. um, a given <laughs> yeah, setting or scenario that I've come up with. Part of it's just, uh, you know, maybe 
maybe I want the game more than the other people at the table, that when it comes time for somebody to put together a game and say, okay, guys, we're playing, that's more often me than other folks, I guess, who uh, get to the point of saying, and I'll GM it, if that's what it takes to, to make it happen. Well, can you tell us about a campaign that that you've run the last five or ten years that was just really fun? Mm-hmm. Something you look back at as a real highlight? Yeah, um, I mean, the last sort of homebrew campaign that I ran was in Pathfinder Rules, but Forgotten Realms setting. And, uh, yeah, I took just a couple random little sentences in one of the Forgotten Realms source books and said, I don't know anything about this. I've never heard of this before. This is an area of the world I've never touched. Yeah, just some some note about uh, some minor regional demigod protecting a forest from one of the big bad gods during the, the time of troubles when all the gods walked the earth. So, okay, maybe that big bad god wants revenge on this teeny tiny regional demigod. Let's see what happens there. So That's great. Yeah, you know, started the campaign in the, the little town that was the, the world center of this regional demigod's power and uh, destroyed the town in you know the first two minutes of the, the session. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's, okay, where do we go from there? So, yeah, that lasted for a couple of years. And, nice. yeah, kind of up through, I think we got to probably 10th level characters or so. But a lot of it was sort of I had the, the overall idea of where it was going to go, but kind of planned what was going to happen in, in each session, what happened after I saw what happened in the last session and, you know, what folks picked up on and where they wanted to go. So a lot of that was, yeah going out and cribbing maps or encounters or entire modules and just relabeling them to fit into the, the scenario. But there was the big climactic scene when they had finally collected the you know, phylactery of this fallen demigod and taken it to the place of his, this, the locus of his power in order to reincarnate him so that he could come back and fight off the the impending forces of doom. Um, of course, yeah. But of course, he came back as an infant because you, know, you don't just get to re- resurrect a fully grown god for free. Oh, wow. Um, mm-hmm. So suddenly they had this little tiny person with a lion's head that they had to <laughs> kick, carry out of the dungeon in a you know baby Bjorn while fighting <laughs> off monsters. Um, oh, that's fun. Yeah, it worked well. And then um, I think that campaign kind of came to an end because my wife and I had twins and that took up a lot of time. And then mm-hmm. half the other people in our group also had kids within about six months. So <laughs> it got difficult to, to get the group. They were inspired by your campaign featuring a baby. Uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clearly it was on our minds at that point, but yeah, right. um, did you, so did you prefer running a campaign like that where you're sort of just one session ahead <laughs> of yeah. everybody or would you like having everything mapped out ahead of time? Um, some of both. I, don't know that I've ever found exactly the right mix of the big things that I, I know way ahead of time or what I'm, I'm making up a session or two in advance as I go. I, I like being able to have the overarching themes and the ideas and the, you know, where do I want to go with this, this big bad or this big ally or whatever. But then having too much of that makes it hard to, it, it's hard to figure out what, what needs to happen in a session to continue that arc while also having it seem natural in the, the moment. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Going back to our, our topic, right, about you know, theater of the mind versus maps and minis and things like that. It right. seems like in a campaign in that style where you're sort of just one session ahead, uh-huh. is it harder to have some of those maps and things at the table or do you end up kind of sketching stuff quickly? Yeah, when I when I have a you know, published glossy map to put out that I say, oh, I'm planning an encounter or something that happens in a place that looks kind of like this, um, 
I, I like to use it. Otherwise, it's a lot of really quickly sketching out with markers on a grid. Since my group does play mostly Pathfinder or D&D, it is mostly grid and minis for combat just because of the, the tactical specificity of some of the rules. And I will say also, I, for at least some of my players, having the, the tangible artifact of the, the map or the mini you know, or pictures of NPCs helps them helps them keep paying attention and uh, feel like they're they're into it. So. Whereas the yeah. theater of the mind lets them sort of drift off a little bit more. <laughs> yes. So, Chris, I feel like we have probably hit on this topic at various points in the past just between the two of us. But can you remind me, are you a theater of the mind GM or are you more of a visual representation and tactile game elements type of guy? Oh, I vastly prefer theater of the mind personally, although I, I'm starting to come around to the idea of having minis for positioning as a, as a useful thing to have on the table. Um, but I... I get a kick out of, personally, I get a kick out of describing the scene and kind of setting the scene scene for folks. Um, and I think when you start putting stuff on the table, it's easier to sort of get away from some of those little details that you can get through through narration and just, like, people imagining what the thing is, right? I think sometimes when you, like, you, you describe a room and you leave out some of the details, people will come up with, like, a richer version of that room than what you would draw out <laughs> yeah. for them. Right. So I like kind of leaning on other people's creativity um, in that way too. But yeah, but having the minis too is also super useful. So you're not just describing over and over like, okay, well actually, yeah, there's a goblin on your left and your right. And there's one over there and <laughs> right. those sorts of things that people just, just need that basic information. That's hard to keep track of. What about you, Andy? Yeah, like Murph, I've been playing for a couple decades, and in the course of those decades, I've kind of been on both sides of the spectrum, and probably usually fall somewhere in between pure theater of the mind and uh, more full-blown minis and tactical maps. When I started out playing Rollmaster and some other games like that, we did the markers on a whiteboard type of visual representation. Then when I got into games like Call of Cthulhu, where tactical positioning was not really all that important to understand what was going on, or it was it was only important once or twice in a typical adventure, then I kind of got more into a mode of theater of the mind. These days, it's uh, somewhere in between. With 3rd and 4th and 5th edition D&D all work pretty well, and to different extents really uh, lean into visual representation, especially in combat, so I do use more uh, maps and minis and stuff like that now than I used to. Every once in a while I'll see a Kickstarter for some, like, really well-designed 3D-printed terrain mm. and things like that. Are either of you ever tempted by those sorts of things where you, you start to get into almost like model making at that point? I am tempted, but not super tempted, mostly because I I understand that it would be a big money sink if I started going down that road. That way lies madness, I think. Uh, <laughs> I did, it did help when I discovered it's quite easy to make simple modular dungeon floor type terrain. Like that requires almost no crafting skills. So I spent a little time on YouTube picking up some basic stuff like that. So I, if I need some basic dungeon tile type stuff, I can whip that out on some foam pretty quickly. I don't think I really have the financial resources to invest in the more fancy castles and towers and things yeah. like that. What about you guys? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely tempted by the, the fancy 3D terrain. I don't similarly have the, uh, the financial wherewithal to invest in... <laughs> Any significant quantity of it, or necessarily a place to put it, if I, if I did it. Right. There is that, too, um, yes. Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to drop a lot of cash on RPGs, it should be on RPG rule books that I'm not ever really going to use or run. Uh, that's the only <laughs> right way to right. waste yes. my money. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have done some similarly, uh, just very basic terrain construction. Yeah, basically like you know, blocks, wooden blocks with a little bit of decoration to them just to represent an area or a structure, you know, just to get something on the map that, that characters can be you know, on one side or another of or up on top of or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I just remembered something. I'd completely forgotten about this. Back in college, a friend, uh, some friends of mine played a lot of Warhammer uh, 40K two of us got together and we ended up making them like a modular table to play. So they had a couple of large pieces they could reconfigure and we had built like this PVC stands and and things like that. So they could, you know, have kind of their basic setup, but then we had a bunch of like these building blocks that they could stack on top of each other. Um, It was really fun because like I was not into gaming at that point, but we gave them this, this set of this modular table and then they immediately like started doing all sorts of stuff we didn't even think about (laughs) doing with it. But it was really interesting. Yeah. And I haven't thought about that in like a decade or so, but um, yeah, something like that would be, you know, kind of fun, I think to have at the, the gaming table, but I think I would get way too into fiddling with it and like getting things all set up exactly perfectly and then it's like well but they maybe they don't want to do that (laughs) yeah when you at cons and things like that you sometimes see those uh really expensive but gorgeous custom game tables with the trays and the Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. and the dice drawers and things like that that's always i can't say it's tempting because i literally couldn't afford them but uh (laughs) it it is a pretty impressive do either of you guys have a game table even like a you know a lower scale thing that you have customized in any way for your gaming purposes our kitchen table we bought it sort of with the express purpose of it being also the place that we play board games and things like that so it actually works fairly well for a large group we get there's some leaves that can extend out you know which is great but my experience has been it doesn't really matter you know what the table is it's you know who's gonna actually gather around it mm-hmm. right yeah we also just rely on the uh the classic kitchen table uh, yeah <laughs> So does it throw you guys off, or do you embrace using visual elements that thematically have nothing to do with the game you're running? So is it cool with you guys to represent the player characters with a couple of Lego dudes, and the uh, the orc tower is a Mountain Dew can, and <laughs> uh, you know there's a big foam block that's the castle gate? Is that cool with you guys, or do you find yourself needing to put in some work to make it look more visually connected i think it depends on the the tone of the game and the the situation you know certainly if it's uh something that i've planned ahead as a significant moment in the the campaign story like i put more effort into making sure that that it's well represented visually or at least i've got things that are plausibly close enough as to not be distracting i definitely do a lot of um, stand-ins of like here's the monster um for combat purposes this is not what it looks like. Here's the picture of what it looks like. But they both have wings, so just pretend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have definitely also used my fair amount of Lego guys for minis um, <laughs> over time. So especially in middle school when I had tons of Legos and not a ton of specific minis. So how about you, Chris? Um, I I don't really do I, everything. I do is very much just like sketches on piece of paper and pennies or ripped up pieces of paper things like that my players have started to buy minis though um which look really great one of them actually got one done with i think it's like hero forge is what it is you can get actual 3d model of your character printed out which looks amazing right you know so then it looks my pieces of paper like (laughs) makes my pieces of paper look just terrible (laughs) in comparison someone's bringing the a game and oh yeah it is absolutely not me but um they're having fun so (laughs) that's okay (laughs) 
yeah, I need to get down to Vault of Midnight or something to just pick up some some basic stuff. I think to yeah to to match at least their level. That makes me wonder: Do you guys find that your players really get into their own visual stuff, miniatures, things like that, or do you provide it all as a GM? I totally rely on my players, and they they have brought it. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Murph? Yeah, I I mostly provide minis to my players because I, I do have players who aren't aren't so into gaming that they want to go out and find their own mini or anything like that. I have some players who will say, oh, I've got a great mini for this. I'll, I'll bring my character with me every week. My wife, who's one of my players, has done a couple of her characters as Shrinky Dinks, where she actually oh, nice. designed a, a mini of her character. Wow. Um, and then you know, Shrinky dinked it down to scale, you know, attached a little feet on it to stand it up. Oh, so, that's fantastic. I so she put a lot of effort into those. But yeah, That's super cool. I've also started playing recently with my kids. Um, mm. We've done No Thank You Evil a couple of times. Which is, you know, we do that mostly theater of the mind, but with, yeah, they have minis for their characters and all of the NPCs have a mini of some sort. And some of those are D&D minis, some of those are Lego guys, some of those are stuffed animals or My Little Ponies. Um, <laughs> and as far as, uh, do you use things that don't represent the idea in that case? Uh, no, they pretty much all, the NPCs look exactly like whatever the figure is I'm using oh, to represent great. it. Because, like, otherwise my kids will argue with me. And, oh, nice. Like, like no, that's not a that's not a unicorn. That's a pony <laughs> with wings. So get it straight, Daddy. So, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> how is uh, how is no thank you evil? By the way, that's one I've had my eye on for like a year or two, and I've mm-hmm. not picked it up. But I have uh, kids that are a little bit into gaming as well, and I've thought about picking it up. What's your experience with it? Um, so my kids are five, and I think we we played our first session when they were four. So yeah, definitely. Um, it has fairly basic rules, but for a four or five year old, still requires um, you're basically saying, "Okay, here's a six sided die. Um, uh, we'll just tell a story together, and when I tell you occasionally, uh, you'll roll a die and try to beat a number. And here are some chips that you can turn in to to add to that number mm-hmm. if you want." So I think it works. It works well for that, as long as you plan on about a fifteen or twenty minute game session before people lose their attention span and need to wander away or mm-hmm. um, somebody just hijacks the narrative and starts like telling their <laughs> own story without um, paying attention to the other people at the table. It plays pretty fast and you know, the rules are uh, straightforward enough that the, the average gamer parent can get a hold of them really quickly and flex them as needed um, mm-hmm. to fit the, the kid's attention span or the, their ability to, to grasp whatever number of concepts and it's uh the setting is very much a, a kitchen sink of whatever kids literature they thought of to throw into it so it, it's perfectly amenable to adding in whatever you want to talk about and, and having the story for the day so uh, that's super cool we've we've ended up just doing a bunch of sort of like fetch quest adventures where somebody needs you to deliver cupcakes to their friend the unicorn for their birthday and you know what are the obstacles that you have to surmount on the way to to deliver the cupcakes or, I want to play next time. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, have you played um, anything with your kid yet? We have just started playing a game we called Dice Game mm-hmm. at the, the kitchen table when we're eating dinner, which is just getting her used to the idea of rolling dice and recognizing numbers and matching them and things like that. So she's right. super into it right now. So I'm excited to add some sort of narrative element on top of that. 
but we've been doing a fun thing where every time we play that game, um, at the end of it, we add another rule to it. So oh, someone cool. can just make up a new rule. So it's, it's, it's really fun over the course of a couple of weeks. It started to expand and evolve huh. and stuff. So I'll probably start adding in like story, story hooks pretty soon. Yeah. yeah that's a great <laughs> way to do it actually. Yeah. We have a big, um, big, just like centerpiece of dice. Uh, so my wife had gotten me for a birthday present a while back, just a pound of dice I think it was like a, two pounds of dice or something. So it was all the cast-offs from Chessex. But mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's fun just having all those around that you can play with. So a general question, whether you're playing kind of theater of the mind or you're using miniatures, do you guys find yourself using game e terms when you're talking about what your players are doing and what the monsters are doing? Or do you try to use the kind of real-world terms that would be used in the game world? So I guess a really simple example might be, do you say the monster moves five spaces to approach you and attack? Or do you say the monster sprints at you? You know, where do you fall in that? Yeah, I usually do it more generally, right? Yeah, so if a monster is going to run towards you, I'll say that it's running towards you. And then if they need to know the distance for a spell or whatnot, I'll tell them the distance if they, they ask for it. But I like to keep it more of like... Not necessarily like we're describing a movie together, but more like a book we're writing together. I know some GMs definitely use like movie language to describe lots of what's happening at the table, um, just as far as you know, camera movements and like what we're focusing on and things like that. But I, we try to stick to more yeah narrative books. How about you, Murph? I don't necessarily you know, describe all the action in game terms so much as. Um, and because we do mostly use maps and maze, it's easy to show to show movement and position and um, communicate some things that way uh, while describing more narratively you know, what different different characters are doing. For some of my players who are not terribly invested in you know, knowing all the rules and you know, remembering what they mean, I will take care to point out when something tactically significant has happened to their character as far as like and because this monster is tall and has long arms you are flanked even though he's not right next to you right now so uh, so just to make sure that they don't feel caught by surprise when something happens that they weren't anticipating later have you ever run a game or thought about running a game where you actually hid from the players some of the game terms and numbers to help immersion or storytelling mm-hmm. like you don't tell them how many hit points they have just that they're wounded heavily and bleeding from a big gash on their arm have you ever tried something like that yeah i tried it with D, it gets tough to, to hide that information for too long because they just you know they need to know what hits and sometimes it's easier just to tell the table like okay you have to beat a 12 right yeah <laughs> you know so you can just move on move on with the game but yeah i do like trying to do that as much as much as i can because it's it's more fun to me than watching numbers tick down murph how about you yeah, I've, I've experimented with things like tracking players' hit points secretly <laughs> in the past, uh, but partly just mental load. Yeah, there tends to be <laughs> enough going on that I, I don't necessarily want to deal with too much that way if, if, if players can do bookkeeping for themselves. You know, sometimes uh, you know, conditions, um, if somebody gets poisoned or cursed or diseased, that'll tend to hold back of rule-specific information and just narrate effects uh, or spell effects. If yeah, if NPCs are casting spells, I won't necessarily say in rule terms what the name of the spell is, just sort of describe what happens as a result of it. Some of my players know the rules well enough um, and have played for, for various versions for long enough that they can identify spells easily. Other players 
uh, can't do that and are perfectly happy to not know exactly what the spell is. Um, yeah. So it works out well. Do you ever have you ever done that, Andy? Uh, I have. I, similar to you guys, I've experimented with it a little bit and found that for me, it usually isn't really doesn't really pay off, and I mm-hmm. wind up telling people what the numbers are anyway because they just want to know it's a little easier to keep track of stuff that way yeah it's a fun thought i mean if you put all these things we've been talking about together like the idea of you sit down at a table and your players may be like they roll dice every once in a while but for the most part you're just sort of telling a story with them but you're keeping track of all the the numbers and the spreadsheets and things like that behind the screen and they're moving throughout this you know vast 3d printed city with all their miniatures who look exactly like their characters and stuff like that's that seems like someone's version of like the ideal way to play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I don't think it's mine, but it'd also be very cool, I think, to play play in that format if you could. If you could really commit to it 100%, it, it would be really fun. If you wound up just doing it in a sort of half-baked way, it probably would be pretty unsatisfying, which is probably why it hasn't worked well for me, because yeah. it would always have been half-baked with me at the GMing helm. Oh, yeah. I'm tired just thinking about running a session like that. (laughs) On a related note, maybe we're drifting a little bit off the topic of Theater of the Mind, but speaking about the transparency of game mechanics, do you guys also tell players what they need to roll? What's a monster's armor class? Or how hard is it going to be to pick the lock? Do you say it's a DC 18 check? Or do you say roll and then you smirk and tell them that they succeeded or failed? I generally have them roll, and then then we describe the result of that roll. Um, yeah, it's I don't know. Maybe I should do should give them more upfront information. But to me, it's like yeah, you're going to try a thing. I'm not really going to tell you if you're going to be successful before you are or not. So <laughs> yeah, but like yeah. So the first time they're attacking something, I'm not going to tell them the AC of the enemy after they hit it once. And as, as long as that AC isn't going to change, then I'll let them know. Just at the table, right? Similarly, if it's if it's something like picking a lock or yeah, dealing with a trap, I'm not going to tell them target numbers. Um, yeah, if they succeed or fail, I'll tell them like how how easy or difficult it seemed relative to what they achieved, so they can get some idea of the, the mm. complexity of the task, but not necessarily as a target number. And yeah, if there's something like a large combat scene with a lot of stuff going on, yeah, I will sometimes just tell them what, uh, you know, the armor class of certain NPCs is so that they can figure out, like, oh, I'm rolling five attacks against this thing. I just know that three of them hit and two of them didn't, so. Yeah. Yeah. They'll figure it out eventually. I mean, after a few swings right. of hits and misses, right. they'll yeah. narrow it down. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, going back to the topic of maps, I just was wondering, have you ever... Thinking about maps and dungeons in particular, do you draw them out or do you narrate the rooms and let the players draw them out? And I ask this because I've I've read that in the past, right? Like it used to be that if you're playing like kind of hardcore D and D, it's totally up to the players to keep their own map. And then if they didn't re- draw it correctly and they got lost, that was on them um, as they were coming back out of it. So I'm just wondering, yeah, do you, have you ever let your players draw the map or do you always draw it for them? I have done both. I started out by almost always having the players draw the map, and then I would correct an egregious misunderstanding or error. And that was when I was tending to play with you know, some of my peers in high school and college who were taking pretty seriously into the game, and that was something they really dug. As I started playing for you know my other grown-ups, basically other parents, busy people that weren't as much into gaming, 
I found that I usually now just sketch out stuff for them and save that time that we'd normally spend of me describing it, them drawing it, getting it mostly right, and then I'd have to correct something that was a little off or and decide if I should correct it or not. And So these days I pretty much just sketch the dungeon out. How about you, Murph? Similarly, once upon a time, it used to be very player-driven mapping um, with you know, the occasional argument over what the DM did or did not say about the map <laughs> the players got wrong. Yeah, these days it is mostly, um, and right now the, the Pathfinder game that I'm running is a pre-published dungeon that included printed maps for all the levels. So, you know, running on those maps and just, like, covering up the parts that are not visible. But, yeah, mainly I... I do the drawing when there is drawing to be done, unless there's some elements of potentially getting lost involved in whatever's happening. So if the characters are in a cave system spelunking, um, where it's not so cut and dried, like there's a door on the left and a door on the right, but more of sort of dead reckoning and following you know, walls to one side or the other, um, yeah, that'll do more description and less yeah, drawing out you know, specifically what's going on. There's a couple things you just said there, Murph, that I want to follow up on. But first, I use a fair number of Paizo and similar Mm -hmm. published uh, maps, like you say, because they're cool. They're really gorgeous looking maps. But as a practical issue, I really do find it a challenge to have a map of a dungeon level that I have to then cover up parts of it as the players go through. Because first of all, that's kind of a pain and it's a little sloppy. And second, you know, a huge amount of information is conveyed about the layout of the dungeon by just looking at the areas I've covered up. So (laughs) I I often find myself looking at some of these products, which I do use and appreciate it. I'm not bagging on Mm -hmm. it, but thinking like, man, that is a gorgeous map. But that really, that's going to be hard for me to use without kind of giving away a lot of the game here. So I've, I've tried things like letting the players get a crude map of the dungeon in advance, you know, or buy one at Mm -hmm. a local town or something. So to excuse the fact that they have a general sense of what the layout is going to be. But I don't know, how do you handle that? Do you just cover stuff up? Do you tell them, just pretend you don't see that the dungeon heads west? Right, there's definitely a lot of information of, you know, oh, we're in the the lower left corner of this square map. Um, We don't need to look for secret doors on that wall because (laughs) it just goes off onto the table. Or, you know, clearly there's something we've missed because there's a big area still covered up over there. I mean, I will cover up the entire surface of the, um, the published map with, uh, I use, like, rolls of just drawing paper from Ikea that my kids have usually already drawn on. <laughs> so cut jigsaw puzzle it into something that works well for how I anticipate needing to uncover pieces of it. So that way, at least I'm not showing, like, there's a room here and a room here so much as just there's there's uncovered and covered parts of the the map and you don't necessarily know where rooms are individually but and you you could do fake outs with that too right or areas where you know it'll be i'll plan on folding over part of the the paper to uncover something rather than just pulling it away so that like you can't count rooms and figure out like exactly how big everything is so it's it's definitely not the the best situation for the reasons you mentioned. Like it does require a certain active suspension of disbelief in in not knowing where the dungeon's going or what else is there. The game that we're playing right now is very much a like I'm just trying to use a published module and maps for reduced prep time and mm-hmm. yeah, deal with the the less than ideal consequences of that. It does <laughs> it's not all negative. I think yeah, I think letting the players see the map in advance. And occasionally, especially when I'm playing with my kids, I don't even bother to to cover over parts of the map. Mm -hmm. Like, I was playing the uh, Starfinder 
beginner box with my kids uh, a couple yeah. weeks ago, and I just that has a big gorgeous printed map. I just plopped it out on the table, and mm-hmm. that takes away you know some of the I don't know. I keep using the word immersion. It's not exactly what I mean, but I think you get the idea. Mm-hmm. But it does add a sense of gaminess, which is not mm-hmm. necessarily a bad thing, especially with kids. But sometimes it's fun to have that sort of extra meta awareness of we are playing Dungeons Dragons and exploring this dungeon. It feels a little bit more board gamey, but that's not always a bad thing. Chris, do you ever right. bump into this? Um, not really. I guess the one time I experimented most with letting the players draw the map was it went poorly, mostly because the dungeon had sort of a maze section to it. So I immediately ran into this problem where I was trying to describe a maze <laughs> as they're going through it, and that's not possible. So that wasn't great, um, and I found myself yeah reaching over to just sort of correct it more. You know, so that took more time to correct it than it would have had I just drawn it out. Um, you know, for then, I'd like to do more of it though because I think it's it's a nice way to engage certain kinds of personalities at the table. You know, and I have some folks who would love doing that. So it's like you know, I, and I don't love doing it, so they should do it. <laughs> yeah, this this kind of goes back to just a broader sense that I'm having of of trying to split up duties at the gaming table a little bit more and putting less less pressure on the the gm to kind of yeah present everything to the players so yeah i'd I'd like to kind of shift to doing that a bit more and i think one way to get at that too is even if you're playing a published adventure like not putting that map down but having to yeah redraw it out um, on the table is a way to do it and also just like letting go a little bit of it being accurate to what you have behind the screen as well so i guess yeah this is probably a very obvious thing but it's like if they don't see that printed map that you have in the book they'll never know that they missed something or that they drew right. it wrong because that's like their reality right <laughs> is the thing that they saw Un- on the table. until they reach the point where they're like well logically this room has to be next yes. to this other room because that's how yeah. physics works and then you realize you've horribly <laughs> screwed up your description of your the description level. yeah, yeah. So. of course yeah <laughs> So both of you guys mentioned um, mazes a minute ago. Do you guys both, when it when you get into a part of a dungeon or an area that's a maze-like or it's an actual maze, do you switch to a more theater-of-the-mind mode? Or do you sketch out the maze and watch them maneuver their miniatures through the maze? Yeah, I would say more theater-of-the-mind and less specificity about everything being quite to scale so much as... Yeah, how well a job of muddling through this this area do you do? Describe thought process and yeah, how you're going about exploring this and make some significant decisions along the way, but uh, otherwise not try to to navigate them through uh, yeah, a very specific detailed map of a maze. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hard. Have you ever had players really enjoy <laughs> going yeah. through a maze? It doesn't, I don't think I would enjoy enjoy that as a player. No, I mean, I think I've tried the very detailed actually solving a maze problem a long time ago and uh, i don't think anybody was satisfied with it so um, mm-hmm. that's why that that's something that gets a little bit abstracted away it, it yeah. just seems like it would be just kind of tedious right you have to yeah. stop at every branching point and describe it and make sure they have it right because if you are going to ask them to solve a real maze you can't screw up your description of the maze or, or you wreck the whole point so that sounds mm-hmm. really tedious and stressful so <laughs> my favorite moment as a player when there was a maze um Matt Wilson, a, a past guest, uh, was the GM, 
he's like, and you're all heroes, so you probably just follow the left-hand rule of mazes, <laughs> yeah. and then you get to the end right. of it. <laughs> like, yeah, there okay, that's, yeah. that's great. That's great, yeah. Just kind of skipped right to the, the end, end part of it, which was really nice. Um, I have one more question, and then we should probably start wrapping it up. Um, so I am wondering, right, so we've talked a lot about D&D and Pathfinder, mm-hmm. things like that. When you're running a different system, like, say, Dungeon World, which you played a couple sessions in, do all of your sort of your notions about theater of the mind versus, you know, maps and minis, do those go out the window and you approach it differently? Or did you try to, or do you try to use some of those things that are more, I guess I would say like, yeah, like D and D ish in some of these games that are more narrative driven. I was kind of going to ask you the same thing. I still use uh, a lot of sketching out a map and using minis to represent the characters and any NPCs. And yeah, that's in part just my habits, but also, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, some of my players really like being able to see physically, is that thing a long ways away from me or not so far away from me? And yeah, mm-hmm. where am I relative to my team and relative to the bad guys? So yeah, it gets a lot less specific when I've played something like Dungeon World or Dungeon Crawl Classic or Numenera, where sort of close versus far away matters more than, yeah. 25 feet versus 30 feet, but still at least a, a rough sketch of what's going on. Yeah, same here. When I run non-D&D stuff, stuff that does not have baked into the rules quite so much tactical specificity, I do, out of habit, I suppose, do to- still tend to do things like sketch out and use miniatures or tokens to represent where people are. But the purpose is, as Murph said, to show relation spatial relationships, not so much mm-hmm. to uh, to try and represent realistically a tactical situation. Chris, how would you answer your own question? Yeah, and the the Blades in the Dark game that we're we're playing off and on, um, it's it's interesting because I'm doing low prep to no prep for that, and then just reacting to the players as they want to do stuff. So I'm finding that I have to end up sketching environments as they're happening, um, which is fun and terrifying <laughs> all at the same time. Uh, but yeah, I do find actually it's kind of interesting. Like when I'm playing D and D, I feel like I can do a little bit more theater of the mind with that but when i'm doing that blades in the dark thing it actually helps me quite a bit if i just take a minute and kind of sketch a very concrete like general layout of what's going on right so the players a couple sessions ago had done this like raid on a a three-story house right so all of a sudden i need to sort of come up with that like how does that house work how does it fit on the street and some of those things it doesn't matter how big the house is really in feet you know square footage or anything like that but it does matter that the kitchen attaches to the living room and like all those sorts of things making that sketch helps you remember like if there's a second story there better be stairs somewhere (laughs) exactly i chris i was thinking of that exact scene because i am a player in chris's blades in the dark game i was thinking of that exact Mm -hmm. scene when you brought this topic up blades in the dark is on the one hand I mean, it's a very story-driven game. You would think that it's very far away from the kind of game that would need a tactical map of a dungeon. But in that situation, mm-hmm. it got confusing quickly before I was mm-hmm. able to kind of sort in my head, you know, in this three-story mm-hmm. building, you know, who was on the bottom floor? Some of us were on the second, and someone was trying to sneak up to the third. And yeah, mm-hmm. it, it helps. Yeah, you you all weren't very sneaky, so immediately it became chaos. <laughs> yeah, that's... yeah, and then all of a sudden Andy is summoning a ghost from the second floor, and he's on the first floor. I'm like, what is going? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it got weird, but yeah, yeah, but that's blades for it. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, we uh, we should wrap up. We've been going a little bit. Um, this has been a super good conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on, Murph. Um, hopefully you had fun. <laughs> yeah, I did. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess thinking about the, the table of topics, right? So we've talked mm-hmm. about your topic, right? And like, right. so now I'd love it if you could replace that with, with something of your own so someone else can roll it. Do you have any ideas that you've thought of? Yeah, so I think you've got... You've got a topic of how do you introduce a new person to your game. I offer the opposite of that of how do you bring a new game to your existing gaming group, but Whoa. turn somebody on to something new that they haven't played before. Well, my That's mind is blown. I did not expect yeah. that that was a topic you're bringing up. That's a really good one. Okay. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, you'll have to come back on and maybe you can roll it and tell us, <laughs> right. tell us the answer. We'll see. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. I guess the other thing that we should do is just take a minute and thank everybody for listening. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Um, we know that there are many podcasts out there, so (laughs) we really, (laughs) really love it that you took some time to, to listen to ours. So yeah, if you do listen, please reach out to us and just let us know. Um, we love getting feedback of all sorts. Um, yeah, actually the reason that Murph is on here is because he reached out because he had mentioned that he was listening to it. I was like, well, you should come on. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So please do that. Um, we'll, we'll make sure that we have contact information on the actual site. We realized we didn't have that up until fairly recently. So that'll be up there. Um, you can just go to gmdiscussions.com and either subscribe there, send someone else the link, or, you know, you can contact us through that. Complaints go to Chris. Uh, praise goes to Andy. Yes. And I'm just here for now. So yeah. <laughs> yes. So nothing goes to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> please do not send any, anything to Murph. Now, I, I will warn uh, listeners that if you do reach out to Chris, he will put you on the show. So that's my uh, experience. Yeah, that will absolutely happen. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> become an easy mark at that point. <laughs> yeah, we tracked down Murph somewhere west of the Mississippi uh, before he was trying to make a break for yeah. it. But we pulled him on the map. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, once again, thank you, Murph, for coming on. Um, I've been Chris Salzman. I've been Andy Rao. Remember, if your players are having fun, you're a great GM. <laughs>